Uh, so last week in the Two Kings series, uh, we heard that the reforms of King Josiah, who was a good king, came too late for the kingdom of Judah. Because of the shocking evil of King Manasseh, God had already committed to bringing severe judgment. Today, we pick up with one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, on the throne. So we're starting from chapter 23, verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Zebida, daughter of Padiah, and she was from Rumah. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive As for the other events of Jehoiakim's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoiakim rested with his ancestors, and Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. The king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again, because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. 
He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, through the though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those he had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. So then uh, we're going to skip to the end uh, in the section that we're skipping over. The remaining valuable items of the temple are plundered, some remaining government officials and soldiers are executed, and there is internal political chaos in Judah that results in many fleeing to Egypt, uh, fearing the Babylonians. So we'll then pick up from chapter 25, verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honour higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. Thank you so much, Sarah, and hello again, everyone. Uh, great to keep open uh, that part of the Bible as we look at it for the next little while together. It's a big chunk and very well read, uh, which is super helpful for us, but we're going to spend a bit of time uh, just yeah, looking through the details a bit more. Um, I have three sons who are six, four, and two, and so there's a bit of a repeated theme for me at the moment as a parent, um, trying to convince my kids it's going to be okay. Uh, if a little bit of skin comes off their knee, uh, my job is to help them realise they're probably not going to die, they will be okay. Uh, and I try and convince them as they're watching a movie, and when something apparently scary happens, um, that it's going to be okay. That is, I'm not talking about watching The Exorcist with my kids or something like that. I'm talking about watching The Paw Patrol. Uh, and when there's, there's a tension or, or a minor challenge to the main character, like just a dog catcher merely being on screen, it's kind of enough to make um, the kids just feel a bit uh, scared and worried. Um, so my job... Uh, for people who don't yet appreciate uh, just that you need conflict in a story to make it good, uh, my job is to convince them and encourage and Let's just watch this together and you'll see. It'll be okay. Um, I can do that fully confident as a parent uh, that it will be okay because I know what they're still learning, uh, that kids' movies always have a happy ending, don't they? Like what company in their right mind would make a kids' movie with a tragic ending? Be ridiculous. 
I can genuinely say it will be okay. It's also one of the great privileges I have as a pastor, entrusted to preach God's Word here week in, week out, to say the same thing uh, with just as much confidence. Uh, It will be okay. Uh, We can be confident looking to our future if we trust in Jesus, uh, no matter what we're going through now, uh, no matter what you're worried about or scared of or what you might be um, having to go through. Your future, at the end of your story, it will be okay. It will be better than okay, actually. God has promised an extraordinary eternity, a happily ever after for his people. But it's in those chapters of life that some of you will know too well, uh, those darkest days, those worst chapters of life, uh, that you need to hear all the more from God himself, that it will be okay, that he really does have you safely in his hands, no matter the circumstances, no matter the trials we're facing. As we finish our series in Two Kings today, and uh, look at those really, I think, bleak and devastating details that we've just heard about, Uh, This is genuinely the scary part of the movie, as it were. Uh, This is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. Uh, And in these chapters, I think God is making clear that it actually will be okay. If you didn't take in all the details of those chapters, it was a big reading and there's lots going on. It's understandable if you didn't absorb everything that Sarah just read for us. Um, Especially if you're brand new or new for the first time today or new to this part of the Bible, there's a lot going on. The main thing I want you to know is that these chapters are basically the climax, the kind of the the end point of the Old Testament. Yes, other stuff happens after this. Um, The the Judeans do eventually return from exile. But what happens in these chapters we've just read is just so devastating that Judah never really recovers. This is kind of their end point at one level. Now, it's not lost on me that uh, the part of the world we're reading about in these chapters, uh, the Middle East is yet again, as I speak, a place full of horror and violence. I'm sure all of us have seen more images than we would like of just horrific things coming out of Israel and of Gaza. And I think these things are bitterly uncomfortable reminders that as we read chapters like this in the Bible, it skips over, really, the human suffering at one level. It reminds us we're not reading fiction. Uh, We're hearing about real despair for real people. Like, siege warfare is horrific. So what's happening in Israel right now, I find, uh, gives a right heaviness to these devastating chapters. And I think that makes them all the more important to read. As the regulars here will know, we are committed to reading and engaging thoughtfully with the whole Bible. Uh, Believe me, it would be far easier not to do a series in Two Kings. It would be much easier to stick to other parts of the Bible that are um, much easier to get our heads around. But I think the big idea today is that staring into the darkness, uh, seeing this despair, it does help us. uh, Because hope always shines so much brighter in the darkness. Last week, Matt very helpfully reminded us of a really important principle as we read the Bible and try and understand what we're reading. As much as we can, we should always try to understand um, what each part, also who each part was originally written for. And Two Kings wasn't written for us here in Adelaide, uh, not in the first instance. It was first written for exiles living in Babylon. So the people who first read this, what we just read, the first people to read it, they didn't need to know the details. They lived through it. Their parents did. And so rather than kind of give us lots of details, it seems to me what the author of this book is trying to do uh, for the exile is to get them to do at least two big things. First, to really wrestle with and consider some really important questions and not just assume easy answers. And secondly, I think more importantly, the author of this part of the Bible wants the exiles to see a light of hope in darkness, uh, a sort of darkness that I think you and I could probably only imagine. Now, in the section we read, we met three kings of Judah. 
Uh, it gets pretty confusing pretty quickly, doesn't it? Uh, they have similar names, Jehoiakim Kim and Jehoiakin, Kin, um, or I'll say Jehoiachin, I think, just because it sounds a bit different. I don't know. But they're attacked three times as well. There's three different attacks uh, from Babylon. And just in your leaflet and the sermon outline there, I've just left a note uh, to kind of explain that there's three different stages to exile uh, to kind of break that up for us a little bit. There's lots of details, but the one detail um, I think it's worth pointing out from the start here is that all the kings do evil. Uh, three kings, they all do evil. Again, the author doesn't go into a lot of detail about their evil, what they do or don't do. But to have a look at the start, uh, sorry, at the end of chapter 23, uh, we're told more than enough in verse 37. We're told, Jehoiakim did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. Now, all through 1 and 2 Kings, we've read about his predecessors and they have done some abysmal things. Uh, There are some terrible predecessors. He's in bad company here. Uh, We've also seen, though, and this is something I really want to uh, draw out here, is that when a king goes bad, uh, so do to his people. When a king goes bad, so do to his people. I think the saying goes, the fish rots from the head down. Um, That's kind of what's going on here. Now, usually uh, with kings like Manasseh, who was probably the worst of kings, um, this ends up with everyone worshipping idols and also horrific acts of injustice, shedding innocent blood. That is, we're told here the kings do evil, and that's true, uh, but what we understand after reading 1 and 2 Kings is that means actually the nation is also doing evil. They've also been led astray and are worshipping false gods. That is, Judah are here, they're not all innocent bystanders. Uh, Not all of them, at least. Still, the weight of blame is clearly on the kings, isn't it? They had one job. Uh, The job of the king was to lead their people in obeying and honouring God. That's what they're commissioned to do. But what we've seen in this series are generation after generation, king after king, uh, with only a few exceptions, they have been abject failures at doing that, leading their people to honour God as they should. And so, uh, this moment finally arrives. It's been long delayed, but it's the moment that God's patience runs out. At the start of chapter 24, along comes King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And there's a picture of him, or something like him. That's kind of, yeah, strike fear into our hearts. Now, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, uh, it seems he's probably just wanting to do what, you know, he does. Conquer, kill, destroy, capture, uh, loot. Just doing his business. He's probably not realising at all that he is doing the will of God in this. Verse 1 of chapter 24, it puts it simply, it doesn't take us into the horror of warfare. It just tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land. And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. A vassal is like a puppet king. We're not told much here. Uh, The book of Daniel, if you want more details about this first kind of uh, attack, uh, the book of Daniel records more for us. And it just shows that this is a small taste of what is still to come, this first attack. It's the first stage of exile. Uh, Daniel himself uh, was taken into exile at this point. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar took treasures from uh, the temple, uh, and he took people like Daniel, who were like, kind of the best and the brightest of Judah's youth. Um, they were carried off to Babylon as slaves and to be trained in the way of the Babylonians. But Je- uh, Jehoiakim decides, after three years, to rebel against the most powerful ruler the world has ever seen. Not a great idea. Um, To be fair to him, uh, Nebuchadnezzar apparently had lots of other issues to deal with. It might have seemed like a bit of a now or never kind of move uh, to kind of cement his power, but still not a great move. Um, Interestingly, rather than sort it out himself, Nebuchadnezzar here sends others. He sends raiders to destroy and kind of like teaching a lesson, getting them back in line. Actually, have a look at verse 2. That's not what it says. It doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar sends raiders. There's a very uncomfortable truth here. It was the Lord. 
the Lord sent the raiding army to destroy Judah. Why? Well, it's exactly what God had said he would do. He'd warned time and time again, repent before this happens. Verse 3, we get the explanation. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's commands in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including shedding innocent blood. Uh, verse three continues, or verse 4 continues, For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. The Lord was not willing to forgive. I reckon uh, the thought of uh, God being an agent sending violent men to bring judgment, that's a really uncomfortable thought. Uh, that's not straightforward to reconcile. But how about those last words? Uh, the Lord was not willing to forgive. I reckon that's perhaps the most alarming verse in the Bible. Uh, there are all sorts of assumptions that people might make about God and his forgiveness. You might have heard this one. Uh, I'm sure God will forgive me. It's his job, isn't it? It's God's job to forgive. I tend to hear that from people who haven't really looked into these things much. But here we see what we see all through the Bible. It's actually not God's job to forgive. Yes, it's his nature to be forgiving, but he doesn't have to forgive. It's not his job. See, if you had to forgive, it's not really forgiveness, is it? That is, we know from our own lives, when others have asked for our forgiveness, we know, well, forgiveness is not automatic. It's not something that you can kind of just assume will happen. You have to be intentional when you forgive someone. It kind of can be costly for ourselves. And we know from our own experience, forgiveness can't be assumed and it certainly can't be demanded from others. In fact, it only adds insult to injury. If someone wrongs you and then casually assume, oh, yeah, they'll forgive me, it'll be fine. How insulting is that? Or even worse still, if they don't seem to care at all whether you forgive them or not for wronging you. For me, I, I have a big problem, I think. I often presume too much uh, on God's forgiveness. I take for granted, like he's some kind of vending machine uh, that dispenses forgiveness whenever I want it. Of course, it is his nature to forgive, but I think it's my nature too often to think little of God and his forgiveness and to assume I deserve his forgiveness. Perhaps you can relate to that somehow. Uh, certainly, uh, the exiles in Babylon reading this, uh, I think they could relate to that sense of taking God and his forgiveness for granted, looking back and seeing the way that, yeah, they just ignored him. They presumed that he'd protect them and have their back, even though they did nothing uh, to seek him out. After all, we see in these chapters, there's no hints, really, of God's people seeking his help. Exile after exile, it gets worse and worse. Not once do you read of someone saying, hey, God, help us here. No one seems to plead for forgiveness. The silence, I think, is deafening in these chapters. That's been going on for generations. They don't even seem to care. Uh, they think, perhaps, that it doesn't matter if God forgives them or not. Perhaps God will look after them anyway, but God's patience here, it has a limit. As uncomfortable as that might be for us, it is crucial that everyone knows this, uh, because just as we see the severity of God's judgment in these chapters, uh, so too Jesus tells us that God will one day bring judgment to the whole world and on that day it will be a day of weeping for those who find out it's too late then to ask for forgiveness but the bible is very clear the time of forgiveness the time to be reunited with god is it's now it's today for anyone here who hasn't sought god's forgiveness yet um, you haven't sought forgiveness for our failure to love god and honor him as we should uh, please heed this warning we have a chance to do that only before we see God face to face. 
the day we stand before him in judgment, and it is a day that is coming, uh, that day will be too late to seek his forgiveness then. On that day, he will not be willing to forgive. For the exiles, reading this chapter, surely uh, they were able to see their failure to seek God's forgiveness, and they took it for granted. They would have seen, they presumed God would have their back no matter what. Uh, And it really is that height of arrogance, of, of pride and foolishness. And along with it comes dire consequences. Um, we find elsewhere in uh, Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 36, Jehoiakim, uh, he was taken off to Babylon in chains to die there. But even that humiliation, that judgment of losing their king, it doesn't lead the people to repent. Instead, his son, Jehoiachin, uh, picks up right where he left off. Uh, so 24 verse 9, he does evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. But then again, from uh, chapter 24 verse 8, we're not told the politics, we don't know the why, Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he again lays siege to Jerusalem. There's all kinds of geopolitics uh, happening in the background here. There's secret alliances, rebellions. There's all kinds of interesting stuff you can check out on Wikipedia if you're interested. But today, let's uh, stick with the basics. Uh, Jehoiachin finds himself under attack uh, again by the Babylonians and he surrenders. And so the next stage of the exile begins around verse 12. At this time, there's a gigantic group is taken back to Babylon, thousands of people. They're forcibly removed from their homes, from their families, and never to return. The king, he's 18 years old, Uh, he goes into captivity, and we find out he's in there for 37 years in in prison. Along with his family, his officials, they all go. The army is deported, or I guess it's conscripted. Uh, All the tradies, all the professionals, they get carried off into exile. It's absolute disaster for the nation. At the end of verse 14, only the poorest are left in the land. Alongside this, we hear that the temple is raided, or I guess desecrated, as the the objects of worship are removed. Have a look um, yet again at a really uncomfortable detail in verse 13. This happened as the Lord had declared. Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar liked shiny things. He wanted to collect gold. Uh, But the real reason God's temple is emptied is because God said this would happen. God had told King Hezekiah exactly that back in chapter 20, if you're taking notes. And so again, we see something really confronting. uh, That none of this is an accident. It's not a coincidence of history. God is actively involved in bringing judgment. Um, I think it is right for us as a church to keep majoring and keep focusing on God's love and His grace and His mercy. Those things are primary, absolutely. But we must never downplay or forget that God is just. It's a good thing He is just. He writes evil. He fixes wrongs. But it means He does bring judgment on evil. So here, God is active in judging Judah. In fact, verse 20 here, we're told He's angry. It's important, I think, to point out um, God's anger is unlike our anger in some ways. Uh, I think anger for us is often impulsive or reactive, But God has been rightly and righteously angry uh, at the way his people have broken the covenant with him time and time again. They've exploited vulnerable people in their midst over and over and over and over. He'd warned them time and again. That is, God didn't wake up in a bad mood one day. Uh, God was really slow, really slow to anger over many generations. But in the end, he still acts in judgment. The very end of chapter 24, um, about 10 years after Jehoiachin was taken away, a King Zedekiah sets up the final disaster, the final kind of movement in the exile. He seals the fate, actually, uh, and the final chapter, chapter 25, is by far the worst. As Zedekiah rebelled, 
against the king of Babylon. Now, clearly, a bad move. We've seen that already a few times. Breaking a covenant with the most powerful king in the world, of course, has consequences. You don't just do that lightly. From, from the outside, it does seem so foolish. It does seem so arrogant after already seeing those previous uh, examples of what happens when you mess with Babylon. They'd steamroll them every time. You wonder, what makes Zedekiah think he's going to get away with this? I have my guesses, but the author focuses on something much more important. It's actually a focus, not so much on what happens when we rebel against the king of Babylon, but what happens when the covenant with the creator of heaven and earth is broken. When you rebel against the king of kings, God himself. We see that does have consequences. So Israel had entered into a covenant as a nation, a binding relationship with God, uh, and he had promised so much to them. His, his end of the covenant was wonderful. Abundant blessing, uh, long life and prosperity in their land, his favour, his protection. Uh, his protection was guaranteed and his presence to be amongst his people, especially with the temple. All they had to do, all Israel had to do, was to treat him like he deserved, to obey him. They didn't even have to do that perfectly, by the way. Uh, God even provided a sacrificial system, a whole uh, way of asking his forgiveness and seeking it out when they went astray, but Israel hadn't even really tried. Instead, it was outright rebellion at a national level, generation after generation, and that has a cost. Now, incredibly, in chapter 25, uh, in one chapter, all the blessings of the covenant just unwind, they collapse, they evaporate. We see that God doesn't protect Jerusalem, uh, like he had miraculously done against the Assyrians a few chapters back, if you remember. There's famine Uh, Under a horrific siege in uh, verse 3 of chapter 25, famine was always uh, linked to the warnings of breaking the covenant. Famine is always the sign. You need to repent. Um, God hands the king. He gives the land and the people over to the Babylonians entirely. There is no blessing on Judah or Israel here. It's just misery. Zedekiah, his punishment in verse 7, it's it's terrible. Uh, The last thing he sees before his eyes are removed are the execution of his sons. Uh, that's sort of permanently etching grief into him. Finally, from verse 8, uh, Nebuzaradan, uh, one of the Babylonian commanders, he, he just lays Jerusalem to waste. Walls come down, everything from the Temple of Value is, is scrapped, taken back to Babylon, and then fire is just, just destroys everything. Jerusalem, of all the cities of the world, with its temple, the one place where the eternal God had chosen to dwell and to bless, to be present, his special city is destroyed. For the exiles, like, what does that mean? The city in Babylon, Jerusalem's gone, the temple's gone. What does that mean about God? Has he removed his blessing forever? Is there no God? Is he simply defeated by the Babylonian gods? There is perhaps, I think, no more spiritually devastating moment in the Old Testament than this, Jerusalem being sacked and the temple destroyed. Because I think it shows us the price of rebellion against God. There are so many people in our world who uh, really enjoy their lives, enjoy the lives uh, that are full of the blessings that actually do come from God's hands. They just don't recognise it. Instead, they enjoy life, enjoy the blessings of God, but live in rebellion uh, to Him, not wanting anything to do with Him at all. I think this chapter is one of many parts in the Bible that warns our world, those blessings we all enjoy now, they're not permanent. We must not take God or his blessings for granted. My guess is, if these exiles could tell us anything, I'm sure it is this, stop rebelling, Uh, turn to God while there is still time. 
I would even say that the temple being destroyed is, I think, one of the starkest pointers we have about the reality of hell, uh, about the true price of rebellion. Uh, Jesus spoke often about hell. It's a domain where God has removed all his blessing, uh, even the ones we take for granted. In hell, there is no more opportunity to seek forgiveness. And so the destruction of the temple, the symbol of God's blessing, a place where he can go for forgiveness, uh, this chapter helps us understand something of hell. The reality of no longer being protected by a good and kind God, no longer being blessed by him. It's bleak, isn't it? And yet, the horror of this chapter is also pointing us to something, I think, extraordinary. It's pointing out the reason that we know everything will actually be okay. Zedekiah and his people, they paid the price for their rebellion, didn't they? They paid for failing to honour God as they should. Do we need to fear? Do we need to fear paying that price for our rebellion? Because make no mistake, we have all rebelled against God. In our hearts, we have all committed the same kind of treason as the Israelites. We are no better than they. But we do not need to fear. We do not need to fear God's anger at us because he has done something extraordinary. Zedekiah's very distant relative, Jesus, uh, he is the king that God sent into the world. He came to pay the full price for our rebellion. See, if we're confronted by two kings, and I think we should be, how much more ought ought we be confronted by the devastation that God the Son endured on the cross? His heavenly Father had to witness the execution of his own son in a way he will never forget. Worse than a temple building being torn down, God's very person, living with his people, God in flesh, Jesus the true temple, is destroyed on the cross. Jesus is the king who did not shed innocent blood like the kings we've read about. He poured out willingly his own blood, the perfect sacrifice that paid for, paid the price for our rebellion. It satisfied God's right anger for our sin. That is, Jesus endured the full bitterness of God's right anger. He paid the price so we don't have to. He did that so we might have life and we might be able to turn to him for our forgiveness. Isn't that great? So the big question, perhaps the biggest question of all for the exiles, and perhaps even for some here today, is what would it take to repent? What does it take to repent? The Bible teaches that uh, when we witness suffering in our world, uh, or when we go through suffering ourselves, we aren't supposed to wonder if God is punishing us for something specific. It's not like God sees us do something and then punishes us uh, like for like. It's not like that at all. Suffering doesn't point us to what we've done wrong. It actually points us more to uh, what's still to come. That there is judgment coming. As we see a world that is broken suffering, we're reminded a day of judgment is coming. And now is the time to seek refuge. Now is the time to repent before the day of judgment. I've used the word repent quite a few times. Just a quick note on that. Uh, the word repent means changing direction. Uh, and that's what God asks of every, everyone going their own way. Uh, repent, repent from going our own way, repent of our rebellion and turn back to God and his blessing to seek him out. So the exiles in Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem, they certainly experienced suffering. Uh, the question is, as they're sitting there by the rivers of Babylon, how do they respond to this, this national tragedy? They could get angry, they could blame God, uh, they could assume he isn't there or perhaps conclude that he just isn't good or not powerful. Or they could see, what see their suffering for what it really is. Firstly, God's judgment on them for breaking the covenant, but also, also 
that God sent this as an act of mercy, drawing them to humble repentance, to humble them, to, to break their pride and their arrogance. See, a big part of God sending Assyria in the first place and then Babylon is to break stubbornness, to soften hard hearts and to loosen their stiff necks. It just won't bow before God as their king. And so the exile, in its severity, is partly God's last-ditch attempt to get his people back to him. He wants them to return. And it seems the exile is what it takes to soften their hearts. Uh, back when Solomon first built the temple, we looked at this last year, uh, Solomon prayed an incredible, pe- incredible prayer back in 1 Kings 8. Solomon, a hundred years before this, he asked God, when your people sin so much that you drive them from their land, he assumes this is going to happen. He knows what people's hearts are like. Solomon prays, when that happens, when they're in their exile, if they turn back to you, if they turn back to you with all their hearts, from their captivity, please forgive them. Please show mercy. Solomon anticipates what he knows of God, that even in his judgment and through his judgment, God wants his people to return. It's amazing that it takes a brutal exile, the loss of everything, before the exiles do turn their hearts back to God. What we know of those who returned from exile is that, yeah, they, generally speaking, are different to the ones who went into exile. They came back a humbled nation, generally faithful people. As far as we can tell, idolatry never seemed to feature in Israel ever again. It says something, I think, uh, about how stubborn the human heart can be. If this is what it takes to humble us, something like the exile, it can take a disaster to shake us out of our pride. And sometimes God can and does take away everything uh, to bring people to a place of devastation, not out of God's spite, and not even out of judgment in our case, but in mercy, actually. God might draw us to our knees so we might turn to him and find life. My encouragement to anyone here who hasn't yet asked God to forgive you, please do it the easy way. Humble yourself while there is still time. Now, two kings, it isn't exactly a happily ever after story, is it? It doesn't kind of finish in that sort of way. But I do want to take us to those final few verses in this book. Uh, the postscript, really, of two kings, uh, about 40 years, 37 years um, from the kind of uh, verse 26, uh, 27 picks up almost a generation later. Uh, this tells us that actually two kings is not the end of the story, and it assures the exiles and us that everything really will be okay. Jehoiachin, we learned, was about 18 years old when he went into captivity. That was back in uh, chapter 24. After 37 years of being in prison, missing out on the best years of his life, he's released in verse 27. And what's more, the new Babylonian king, for some reason, is kind to him. He honors him, he gives him a seat at the table and gives him more honor than the other kings in Babylon. And so for the rest of his days, Jehoiachin is provided by for the king of Babylon. Now, at one level, this is a tragic scene, seeing how far the line of David has fallen. Uh, Here's the king of Judah. He's stuck in a foreign land at the mercy of a pagan king, and yet he is alive. It's a small glimmer of hope, but it is hope. The line of David has survived. Notice well here, he's not just called Jehoiachin. He is called King Jehoiachin and compared to other kings. That is, he's still a king. Pitiful though it may be, he's still a king, which means he still has a people. Which tells us the final thing we're reading in this book is that the line of David has survived. And that should remind us of something we've seen all through 1 and 2 Kings. God has delayed judgment time and time again for the sake of his servant David and the promise he made to him. So God had promised to David that David would have a line, a, a, um, a royal line that would endure forever. 
And so tragic though this is at the end here, this is still a glimmer of hope because we see God is keeping his promise to David. His family line will endure. That hope is what the exiles in Babylon had to hold on to. Like they're waiting in exile for God to fulfill his promise to David to restore his kingdom. And we know what they don't. Uh, that Jesus, the great descendant of David, the descendant of Jehoiachin, uh, he has claimed the throne, the eternal throne promised by God. It's his forever by his resurrection as the king of kings. And Jesus has already gathered his people and he's gathering people still, assuring us we are forgiven of our rebellion by his blood. We're quite similar, actually, to the exiles in Babylon in a number of ways. Uh, we, too hope, uh, we too live in hope that all of God's promises are still to be fulfilled. Uh, we know God will keep his promises. And we need to keep looking for those reasons he keeps reminding us of in his word that one day he will make everything okay. Uh, we are really like the exiles in that we know our king lives, yet we must wait a little longer still before the king gathers us back to our real home, out of exile. So whatever we may be facing, whatever darkness uh, may still be ahead of us in our time here in exile, our time here in Babylon, this bright light, uh, the certain rule of Jesus who lives, gives us every reason to hope and to keep looking forward, to keep looking forward to the day when we are gathered to our King, to our homeland, to be with Him and to be with Him forever. Would you join me as I pray? Our Lord God, we thank you that you can be trusted to keep your word. Uh, we thank you that that's true, even when uh, your word includes a promise of judgment. And so we thank you all the more that uh, judgment is your last choice and that in your kindness, uh, your mercy is what you prioritize. We thank you for your patience and that your nature is to forgive those who seek you out. I thank you for the way you have kept your promises over many generations, especially the promise you've made to David to have his throne established uh, and to be uh, ruled over by your son Jesus forever. Lord God, we thank you for the many, many blessings we have from your hand now and for the promise of all we have still to look forward to in your kingdom. Please keep each one of us growing in our hope, looking forward to that day. Help us keep trusting in your promises as we live here as exiles. And please help this hope we have to continue to transform our lives. Keep us growing in our humility and our desire to see you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.